The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Fighting through from Dunkirk to Hamburg, podcast 11. The story of the little ship, the bee, at Dunkirk. Great unpublished history. In wartime, ordinary men and women are asked to do extraordinary things. This is the story of the part some Isle of Wight merchant sailors played in rescuing Allied troops from the beaches of Dunkirk in Operation Dynamo. It's the story of the little sailing ship, the Bee. And, and the little boats going over two or three times to, to fetch men off. Hello again. I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of these podcasts is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear memoirs and memories of veterans connected to Dad's war in some way, and much more. I want to start by sharing with you some of the reactions to the previous episode about Captain Tom Woods. There's a lot of relatives alive who remember Tom, and there have been some amazing comments on Facebook. Here's just a few of them. First of all, Sarah, his great-granddaughter, said, I've listened to the podcast twice so far and cried both times. I've been quite moved by everyone's response, especially my Uncle James' reaction. He knew Tom well, so I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. What is so moving for me is to hear your father's account, the account of someone whose life was saved that day. There are so many of us who wouldn't be here had events taken a different course at numerous points in the war. Then Sue said, Just listen to this and it's made me cry. It was great to hear an account of someone rescued by my granddad and to hear his letters read aloud. Reinforces what a brave man he was and all the others who took part in the rescue. Christine said, How emotional to hear this account. It felt like Grandad was reading those letters. It really brought this historic time to life, with Grandad really in the thick of it. What an honourable man he was, and all his civilian colleagues. Well, I've got to say uh, thank you so much to you folks for your thoughts on Facebook. It's so incredibly heartwarming to know how my podcast connected to people so close to the story. Thanks once again for commenting. Now moving on, this podcast is the last in the Dunkirk trilogy, so it's a really exciting finale about the so-called little ships of Dunkirk, in particular one called the Bee from the Isle of Wight. Now the Isle of Wight's an island just off the southern English coastline near Southampton. A lot of the D-Day ships sail from Southampton because it's pretty much straight across the sea from Normandy in France. The Isle of Wight was totally dependent on almost all supplies, including food, being carried by a fleet of small freighters. These were among the flotilla of little ships which sailed to Dunkirk. 
1940, the war was going very badly for the Allies. The Germans had raced across Europe and by late May they'd pushed the British Expeditionary Force and the French Army into a small area in and around Dunkirk. Almost 400,000 men were trapped, together with their transport and equipment, with the sea in front of them and the Germans behind. A total disaster threatened. The troops on the beach were being shelled by the advancing German army and attacked with bombs and machine guns by the Luftwaffe. The following passage is from one of my dad's war books. Lord Gort was in charge of the British Expeditionary Force in France and over some time he'd begun to realise the impossibility of the Allies putting up enough fighting power to better the Germans so he began making his own plans for an evacuation to England although he'd not yet had any direct orders to do so. But when he finally did receive orders on the 26th of May he didn't believe either the Navy or anyone in London really understood the size of the job. At this point, the Navy had only assigned four destroyers to the evacuation. Gort sent RAF Group Captain Victor Goddard to England to make the point that more help was needed. He was to attend a meeting of the Chiefs of Staff as Gort's personal representative. It would be improper for Goddard to address the meeting directly, but Gort hoped he would be able to speak to General Sir Edmund Ironside inside the meeting within earshot of the other attendees. Shortly after 9am, Goddard was ushered through a heavily guarded door marked Chiefs of Staff Only. Inside were the war leaders of the British Empire. Unfortunately, General Ironside wasn't there and Goddard lost his chance to address the meeting. And for a relatively junior RAF officer to appeal directly to the Chief of Naval Staff was an unpardonable breach of protocol. But as the meeting chairman moved forward on the agenda, there was silence as Goddard watched his opportunity slip away. But suddenly he heard his own voice speaking directly to the Admiral of the Fleet. I've been sent by Lord Gort to say that the provision made is not nearly enough. Pound gave him a startled look. The room rustled and all eyes swung to him. Across the table, Sir Richard Pearce, the Vice Chief of Air Staff, sat bolt upright, aghast. It was too late to stop now. Goddard went on and on, detailing the requirements of the hour, going far beyond anything Gort had told him to say. You must send not only channel packets, but pleasure steamers, coasters, fishing boats, lifeboats, yachts, motorboats, everything that can cross the channel. He was repeating himself now. Everything that can cross the channel must be sent. Everything, even rowing boats. At this point, Pierce got up from his seat, slipped over and whispered, You are a bit overwrought. You must get up and leave here. Now. Goddard knew that only too well. He rose, made a slight bow in Pound's direction and managed to leave the room with a reasonable degree of composure but with no kind of sympathy or response. 
The extract I just read out is from an excellent book. It's called The Miracle of Dunkirk by Walter Lord, published by Penguin. But eventually, a fleet of over 900 ships was hastily assembled to try to rescue the Allied army. While the operation was spearheaded by the Royal Navy, with 42 destroyers and other large ships, and ships of the French Navy, the majority of vessels were the 700-odd little ships of Dunkirk. You know, listeners, it's quite ironic that when the evacuation was first announced, there were plans for just using four destroyers for the entire venture. The eventual flotilla included all the craft Goddard had demanded and more. There were merchant marine boats, fishing boats, coasters, yachts, motorboats, pleasure craft and Royal Lifeboat Institution lifeboats whose civilian crews were called into service for the emergency. Even Thames fire ships from the London Fire Brigade that had never been in the open sea sailed down the river to take part. Good for you, RAF Group Captain Victor Goddard. What a hero! I wonder if he ever got a medal for standing up to the indignant, pompous attitudes of the Chiefs of Staff. He certainly deserved one. If you've heard the previous two podcasts, you'll be aware how Major Leslie Petch and his soldiers of 6th Battalion the Green Howards, including my father, struggled through France to get to the Dunkirk beaches and managed to get on board the Lady of Man. This is the story of how some other soldiers were rescued. The aim of this podcast is to tell the tale of the motor barge The Bee and her crew, and how some Isle of Wight men of humble backgrounds bravely responded when called upon to face the danger of death and injury for the sake of their country. I'd like to introduce you to writer Michael Wills, whose efforts have led to this story being preserved on a dedicated website, IOW to dunkirk.com more about that later I'm putting a link to any websites and books mentioned in this podcast in the show notes at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk so you don't need to remember them all now Michael's interest in this story is because her skipper Bill Trowbridge was his great uncle Michael was born in his house and lived there during the war years while his own father was away in the army and we're very lucky to have the complete story of the Bee's voyage, written by Fred Reynard, the ship's engineer. Michael knew Fred well when he was a boy, and used to have short trips down the River Medina on the Bee. The Isle of Wight County Press announced on 4th of February 1928 that Shepherd Brothers had taken delivery of a new motor barge, the Bee, which was to replace a sailing vessel of the same name which had been carrying goods to and from the island since 1801. The new vessel arrived in Newport on 31st of January 1928, coming from Faversham, where she'd been built at James Pollock and Sons shipyard. She'd been given a cargo of cement for ballast. Just like the other vessels working on the River Medina, the bee was shallow draught, so she could sit easily on the mud when the tide was out. In fact, her draught was just two metres when loaded. This was a real advantage for her work at Dunkirk, as she could go very close to the shore to pick up the troops. 
She was 24 metres in length, weighed 45 tonnes, and was powered by two 44-horsepower Belinda engines. The bee's routine roll was dramatically interrupted in May 1940 while she was moored in Portsmouth. The Admiralty singled the official start of Operation Dynamo on 26th of May 1940. Two days later, the bee was in Portsmouth Harbour and the crew were unloading routine cargo when a naval officer boarded the ship and told the captain that the Navy was taking over command of the vessel. A naval crew would take over unless the existing crew volunteered to take part in a dangerous mission. Like the crews of the other island ships, they all did. By 30th of May, the crew found themselves being bombed and shelled off the beach at Dunkirk. So this is the full story of the bee's adventurous voyage as told by Fred Reynard, the engineer. We were unloading iron plates at Portsmouth Dockyard when a naval officer came aboard and informed us that the bee was being taken over by the Navy. He said the task for which she was required was dangerous and the crew could leave for home if they wished and a naval crew would be put aboard. Alternatively, the Navy would be grateful if we volunteered because of our expertise in handling the craft. The crew consisted of Bill Trowbridge, skipper, Harry Downer, mate, myself, Fred Reynard, as engineer, and Mark Hocking, aged 18, as fourth hand. We all agreed to stay with the ship. A Royal Navy sub-lieutenant was seconded to the B, and four days' rations were put aboard before we left harbour at 7.30 in the evening. We steamed through the night and all the next day, arriving at an assembly area off Ramsgate at 5pm. The officer went ashore for instructions and was back within the hour. He told us the British Expeditionary Force was being driven into the sea and that our task was to lift as many off the beaches near Dunkirk as possible. We were again offered the opportunity of quitting. Again we declined, and at 7.30pm, the bee set off. Listeners, here's an alternative version of the narrative from a book by Norman Moss, 19 Weeks. The Navy commandeered the bee, a 70-ton coastal transport boat. The engineer Fred Reynard, a chirpy little man, said to an admiral, Beg pardon, sir, but what do your young gentlemen know about Swedish engines? I've been handling this one since 1912. The officer told him about Dunkirk and said, Have you ever been under shell fire? Ever heard of Gallipoli? Reynard shot back. He and his crew took the bee to Dunkirk with a Navy sub-lieutenant nominally in command. Back to Fred. Two routes had been offered to the officer, and he was free to discuss these with the crew. We could make for Calais, but would come within range of shore batteries, or we could travel by a more northerly route, a distance of 85 miles. But here there were German e-boats making a nuisance of themselves. We opted for the short route via Calais, travelled on our own, and timed our arrival during the cover of darkness. 
we dropped anchor as per instructions to wait for the dawn. Overhead was the drone of aircraft. The sky was stabbed by dozens of searchlight beams, while all around one could see the dark shadows of ships, large and small, all at anchor. We remained unmolested. In the distance one could hear the rumble of guns and the explosion of bombs, while fires raging in the town lit the sky. Zero hour was dawn, 3.30am. Sleep was out of the question, and we busied ourselves hanging a scrambling net over the bows. Dawn finally broke, we raised anchor, and made for the shore. What a sight met our gaze. The sea was covered in oil, and there was wreckage everywhere. The docks were burning as were huge oil containers, and over the town of Dunkirk was a pall of black smoke. The shores were a sea of human beings, and there was a constant stream of men coming over the dunes and down to the water's edge. A light from a very pistol warned us of impending danger. An aircraft appeared, machine gun fire struck the water close by, but no bombs were dropped. Other planes were busy dropping bombs and machine gunning along the beach. We proceeded towards the shore and the nearer we got the more destruction we saw. Upturned craft and human beings floated everywhere. Men were tending the wounded. Back came the bombers and a near miss shook B badly. Warships opened up on the planes. After a direct hit on a destroyer, she listed heavily to port. Another destroyer laden with troops was hit and sinking. Men swam towards the shore. Some were picked up by smaller craft, but a large number, torn and mangled, went down with the ship. Less than an hour since dawn, we were still afloat, yet seemingly had spent a lifetime in hell. We were now nearing the beach, another near miss. No one could be lucky enough to survive this holocaust. Now a welcome sight. Nine of our fighters arrived and straight into the Huns they went. Easy targets, those dive bombers. Some scattered and fled, some went down. Our planes couldn't remain long and back came Jerry with his unceasing bombing. But still that procession of men came down to the water's edge. There was nowhere else to go. Cars, lorries and motorcycles were being sabotaged by being driven into the sea or destroyed on the beaches. A lone chestnut horse ran up and down the beach. More RAF planes arrived, one crashed on the beach. But with more of our planes, what a different story it would have been. B drove at full speed onto the shore and grounded. They came towards us, some wading almost to their necks in the water, those men of the BEF. And we realised that our efforts to assist them aboard, with ropes and scrambling nets, were futile. Waterlogged and utterly exhausted, many wounded, it was impossible for them to make such an effort. 
we quickly sawed the ship's ladder in two, placing one half on each side of the bow. The success was reward enough to see these men file aboard, some equipped with nothing but a covering of clothing, but all with a determination to live. A pause in loading for another raid. We escaped. But just along the beach there was a terrible toll in life and little ships. Another start and with a few interruptions we filled to capacity. Every spot where a man could stand was packed both down in the hold and on the deck. The weight was such that we were stuck firm on the beach and for an hour we struggled to free ourselves until our plight was spotted by a French tug and we were pulled free. When finally underway, our elation was short-lived. We were ordered to transfer the troops to a larger vessel lying offshore. 375 soldiers were transferred to a tug and not once but twice more returned to the beach for further troops. Fearing that any further grounding might be permanent, we used our pinnace, a small boat, to pick up the soldiers, but this proved a painfully slow process amid ever-increasing bombing and shelling. Where there had been ten or a dozen enemy planes dive-bombing ships earlier on, numbers now seemed more like fifty, and not only was there more shelling, it was also increasingly accurate. Just as we were leaving, a naval motorboat came on the scene and picked up another twenty men that she later transferred to us. However, going in for another pickup, she capsized in the by now rough seas and all but one of her crew swam ashore. The other member tried to swim out to us, but he made little progress against the tide, so we threw him a life buoy on a line and eventually pulled him on board. Just as we were leaving for a second time, we saw a small boat leave the shore, so we waited for her too and brought five French soldiers on board. When we finally pulled away for the last time and were ordered to continue with our human cargo to Ramsgate, it marked the end of the most unforgettable 24 hours of my life. We reached Ramsgate and tied up to discharge our troops amidst expressions of gratitude. Not solicited, and better left unsaid, for simple thanks could move us to tears in the wake of such an experience. The stronger helped the weaker up the gangway, and they were met by ladies with cups of hot tea, cakes and cigarettes, while the Red Cross were there to take charge of the wounded. So that other vessels could make use of the landing facilities, we moved B into the middle of the harbour, and the telegraph finally rang, finished with the engines. I went up on deck, lay down on a folded canvas, and as sleep overcame me, I remembered a lad who'd earlier knelt by the engine room hatch and recited the Lord's Prayer. Well, listeners, phew! Let's just catch our breath. What a narrative that was. Can you imagine being there? What a story. Our thanks must go to engineer Fred Reynard telling that story. If anyone is listening who's related to Fred or indeed anyone mentioned in this podcast, please do get in touch. Keep listening, folks, because I've got one of Winston Churchill's awesome speeches coming up to round off the episode. 
I'd like to remind everyone of the website that Michael Wills has set up to record the history of these small ships from the Isle of Wight. It's iow2dunkirk.com. There were five other similar island boats which went to Dunkirk. These were the MFH, the Murius, the Chamois, the Hound and the Bat. It would be wonderful if relatives of their crews could contribute to this website. So if anyone has any photos, information to add, or stories to tell about the island's heroic contribution to the Dunkirk operation, please go to iow2dunkirk.com and add your thoughts to the many contributions already there. I'd recommend having a good dig around on this website because there's a nugget of fascinating history behind every one of the many links. Apparently, during the rescue, one of the bee's propellers was fouled by a piece of wire so she could only use one engine. When she got to Ramsgate, the skipper was ordered to return to Newport for repairs. On her way back, she passed the Hound, the MFH and the Murius on their way to Dunkirk. Can you imagine what the crew of the Bee were thinking then, knowing what a cauldron of danger their mates were sailing into? Listeners, there's one posting on the Isle of Wight to Dunkirk website I'd just like to share with you. It relates to the incident I just mentioned and also casts a light on how the Dunkirk operation must have affected the crew. Julia Furby said, My dad worked as a marine fitter for Pickford's for 43 years, the same company as Mike's great-uncle and the skipper of the Bee. He was there during the Dunkirk evacuation. Dad told me that when the Bee was at Dunkirk, she picked up a hawser from a sunken ship, wrapping it round her port propeller. The Navy person who was on board said to keep her going at all costs. She returned on one engine. This action resulted in her crankshaft bearings breaking down. She returned to Newport and was pulled up onto the slipway at Odessa Yard. Dad had the task of sawing the hawser off and repairing the engine. He said that the crews on returning didn't talk much about what happened but went straight home to families and to sleep. Listeners, I'm now going to end Fred Reynard's story on an extremely sad note, because I have to tell you this. Remember one of the crew I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast? It included a young man, Mark Hocking, aged 18, as fourth hand. Well, all the crew of the Bee ended their Dunkirk mission alive and in one piece. But years later, in December 1968, Mark was working on one of the boats. They'd taken a drifting barge in tow during bad weather. And while it was being towed from Portsmouth, a large wave hit the barge. The tow rope snapped and whipped back and wrapped round Mr Hawking. He died a week later from injuries he received. The miracle of the little ships remains a prominent folk memory in Britain. The operation was codenamed Dynamo, named after the dynamo in a room under Dover Castle. This is where Admiral Ramsay planned and supervised the operation and saved 338,000 Allied troops. 
That was 198,000 British and Canadian and 140,000 French, including some Belgians and Poles. But it was not without cost. 177 British planes were lost trying to protect the evacuation. The Luftwaffe lost 132. 200 Allied sea craft, including six British and three French destroyers, were sunk. Almost a hundred of the little ships were sunk in the operation, and many of their crews lost or wounded. Some 18,000 soldiers were killed during the period, either during the fighting or on the beaches. Around 50,000 troops were captured. Many of these were forced marched back to Germany as prisoners of war. Nevertheless, Operation Dynamo was a success which gave the beleaguered British nation a great morale boost. The rescued soldiers formed the backbone of the army, which eventually triumphed in 1945. Later in the war, Admiral Ramsey planned the Royal Navy's part in the Normandy landings of D-Day. Tragically, he was killed in an air crash near Paris in January 1945 but he'll be best remembered for executing the greatest evacuation fleet in maritime history. I'd like to thank Michael Wills for his help and support in making this story of the bee available to us. Michael's a writer of historical thrillers. If you'd like to know more, please do take a look at michaelwills.eu. Michael has said that while researching for his website... I tried to trace the fate of the six Isle of Wight ships which took part in the Dunkirk evacuation. Apparently the bee was sold in 1966. Last seen painted navy grey, working as a transport barge in Portsmouth Harbour in 1971. I reached the eventual conclusion that sadly all the boats had been scrapped. So it was very good news to hear that one of the ships, the MFH, has survived and took part in the 2015 75th anniversary reenactment of Operation Dynamo. She joined other veterans in ceremonies taking place at Dunkirk to celebrate this historic event. Like several other ships in the Medina fleet, the vessel had a name related to fox hunting, for example the Hound and the Tantivy. MFH stands for Master of Foxhounds. However, the ship's no longer called the MFH because she was renamed by her present owner to Gainsborough Trader. She's been beautifully restored and is now berthed in Greenland Dock in London. So listeners, if you make the trip to London sometime and you see the Gainsborough Trader, I hope this podcast helps you appreciate just some of the adventures that this little ship will have had. If you want to comment on or share what you've heard so far, you can do so via the contact page at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. That's really the only URL you need to remember because that's got links to everything else you might be interested in. So whether you're after social media or feedback or subscribe buttons, you'll find all the links there. You might even have ideas or contributions which could appear in the next series. If so, I'd love to hear from you. In particular, if you've enjoyed listening and you think other people would enjoy it, please do rate the series on iTunes 
or your usual service provider, as doing this does help raise the profile of the podcast in the search engines. For now, thank you so much for listening. Loving it or hating it, drop me a line, fighting through at yahoo.com on anything. Here's the man Winston reporting to Parliament just after Dunkirk had successfully finished on 4th of June 1940. And please do stick around for the postscript. We are told, sir, that Herr Hitler has a plan for invading the British Isles. This has often been thought of before. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year with his flat-bottom boats and his grand army, he was told by someone, there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation, the British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. P.S. On the 31st of May 1940, when Captain Butcher took his Isle of Wight ship, the Bat, to the Dunkirk beach for the second time, he picked up a hundred soldiers, and amongst them was a certain Sergeant Reginald Toogood. Sergeant Toogood was a signaller, and a professional soldier, then aged 28. It turns out that he too came from the Isle of Wight. How's that for a coincidence? You'll find his photo in the show notes. PPS If you're wondering who the lady was, talking at the beginning of the podcast, it was my dear old mum when I was talking to her just a couple of weeks ago. Here she is again with a little bit more to say. I remember the day all the little ships 
went across the channel to get the men off the beach. And the, the small boats went to bigger boats to go farther out because it was too shallow for the bigger ships to get in. So these smaller boats went out and took the men off the bigger boats. Ah, okay. And I remember that day how jubilant everybody was that all these men had been taken off the beaches. Dad and Major Petch walked along the beach to the mall to try and get on a ship, and they did. What happened when the soldiers came back? Well, Dad was uh, uh, in um, Wales, near Swansea. He was looking in a shop window, and uh, this old man and his two daughters came up to him. And the dad was all dishevelled and dirty, just landing from Dunkirk. And um, they said to him, Would, are you from Dunkirk? And Bill said, yes. And they asked him to dinner at the house, and he went, and they became firm friends. I don't know who I was with at that particular time, yeah. but um, I remember us all giving three cheers for the British soldiers. And then the rest of the war began. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. <laughs>